And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. And the next one is Exodus 3, 7 to 15. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the ministry of my people in Egypt, the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name shall, you shall call me from generation to generation. Well, folks, we are on a journey. It's a, uh, it's a rather compelling journey. Last week, we, uh, we saw in, um, in all of this that um, God has plans that are often bigger than our own. And he takes these people that we read about this morning, and he takes them out of Egypt, and he takes them through wilderness, he gives, take, takes them through all kinds of challenges, and he finally brings them to this amazing thing that we have come to call the promised land. And there they are. And their victories have gone well. And um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good thing. But as we come to this morning, we discover that the journey has twists in it. That the journey isn't just all going in, making, or conquering and having the big victories and throwing the victory parties we begin to realize that there's a complexity within the human nature that constantly becomes our challenge. And it's within that complexity that we want to dive into this morning. This isn't as fun a sermon as it was last week, because this is where I have to look at myself a little more deeply. This is where I'm calling you as the church, us together, to look a little more deeply, because the reality is, well, let's unfold the story. 
and in that we will find the reality in a, in, in a sense. Because last weekend, we ended on this note of victory, but we ended it with a challenge. It was a good challenge. This new nation of Israel was not only winning the season title, but they, they weren't just the riders who finally ended up in first place in the West, right? No, they have gone beyond that. They have won the Stanley Cup. They've won the Grey Cup, the Super Bowl, the World Series. They have whatever, the Grand Slam. They have achieved, and this is pretty exciting for them. And uh, I'm sure there was lots and lots of celebration. And with that, you would think that this has got to be the godliest nation ever with everyone loving God. How could you not love God when he has done so much for you? Victory after victory, slaying the enemies, giving you a land, and, and uh, oh my goodness, all the benefits that went with that. But as Joshua came to the end of his life, he, he, he pulled out, pulls all the, the tribes of Israel together for his farewell speech. We get a little clue here that not everything is as churchy as perhaps we think it should be. I mean, now you can imagine this is going to be a, a huge pep rally. They're all, they're all together. Joshua's coming to the end of this life. He's been the great general, right? He's, he's taken them through it all. And... Um, and so he opens up his little speech with them, and he re begins by retelling their history, all the way from Abraham through their, the building of their nation in Egypt, where they started off as heroes under Joseph, and, and then Moses moves in because things had turned upside down on them there, and now they're slaves, not the victors. And, 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 and he talks to them about the victories they made as that first generation of Israels who left Egypt are, are making their way through, hopefully, to get the promised land, but they didn't quite get there. No, he tells them all of their God-given victories right up to this point. But then he has to remind them of this great reality. It's Joshua 24. starts at the last part of the 12th verse, and it reads like this. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. God wants to make that straight. All that's taken place, I need you to understand that something much higher was going on than you just fighting battles. You did not do this with your own sword and bow. So as a result of this whole thing coming into the promised land, right? Joshua's at the end of his life here. He says, so speaking of God... So I gave you a land in which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and you eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. I mean, God handed them this thing called the promised land on a platter. It was theirs. No question. Well, at least in God's mind, it was no question. Who did it? I mean, does it get any better than this? So keep right at it could be his message but he moves into the 14th verse of, uh, of, of Joshua 24. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Good word, Joshua. Here we are at the end of it. We've pretty much conquered it all. Not quite all, but pretty much. Now, here's the word. You've got to fear God in all of this. This isn't some kind of little gimmicky thing. You need to realize I've handed you more than you would have ever anticipated getting on your own. And so don't forget me. That's what he is saying. But then... Here's this strange twist in the story. Verse 14, last part. He has to say to them, 
throw away the God your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, why, why would a nice group of churchy people have to be told to get rid of the gods of their ancestors? What is it they're carrying around in their back pocket? But then he says this. This is such a God picture, friends. This, this is how God treats us in, in a very specific way. He says this to them. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. There's no manipulation in this message. He's eyeballing the nation, and he says, okay, yes, we've been handed a great deal from God, but you've got to make a pretty serious decision now. Those things that you've been carrying around, those little things perhaps you've been hiding in the corner of your tent and worshiping them, or I'm guessing by now probably they're prompted out into the little Buddhas in front of their tent. And, and, and he's saying, you've got to make a decision here. If we're, going to, if we're going to be everything, God speaking, everything I anticipate in the promised land, then you need to understand that there's no playing around with other things. The choice is yours, and he calls them up to it. It's amazing. You'd think he'd want to soften it a little bit, eh? But he doesn't. Because there's no softening in this. He knows what is going to happen if they continue in their sinful ways. And then he makes his final declaration. And it was around this declaration that many of us gathered together at the front of this sanctuary last Sunday. And he said to them, But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That's our declaration this morning. That's the point. That's where we're drawing the line. If we're going to move into our culture, if we're going to dream the dreams that God can give to us, we have got to decide which side of the line we're going to stand on. And there's no place in the middle of the line. It's either or. And he calls it to us. But oh my goodness, when you stop and think about the possibilities of standing on this side of the line, as for me and my house will serve the Lord, it's only possibilities. Not easy possibilities, we're going to learn, but it's possibilities beyond our imagination. I work with a little group called the Life Group Development Team. And there's rarely a session that we get together that we do not remind ourselves of this truth. God's saying to us that he can do more than we ask or imagine. That's a possibility on this side of the line. That's the reality. That's a promised land that you don't buy, you didn't build, you didn't have to plant your, your olive groves or your vineyards. He hands certain things to us because he loves us and he cares for us. If there's anyone that I, if anything that I pray will take away from this morning is that this declaration must override everything else in our lives. The reminder we were given at the end of last week's message was this. Constant victory requires two elements. It requires rejoice to the max in the victories you've been given. When God hands you something good, you go for it. 
You praise him. You rejoice in it. But in the middle of the rejoicing, remember that there's another voice in our world, and that voice does not want the success of the next victory. He's already begun to work for the defeat of the next few steps. And so, yeah, we rejoice in our victories, but friends, we need to prepare for the next battle. That's the sad story of Judges. That's what makes this not so much, uh, this message not as fun as perhaps last week where we're going for the big thing. It's understanding that within human nature, there's a cycle that most of us, if not all of us, have to battle with. This is the cycle of Judges. This paints the backdrop of everything else that's going on. This morning, whoa, time's moving along. This morning, I want to touch on three Judges out of 12 uh, really quickly. But we need to understand why God needed to pull those judges in in the first place and what was their challenge when they, when they, when they did get pulled in. Um, because the pattern began to become so repetitive and evident. Here's where we're called this morning to search our own hearts. Literally. It's, it's, it's this place that if, if we want to make and take the stand that God is calling us into... We have to be ready for this because there's two truths about constant victory. We rejoice to the max in the victory, but prepare for the battle because there's one coming after it, always. So here's the cycle. Here's the pattern. Movement number one, we sin. People moved from worshiping God to the gods within their culture. Bad choice because God wants to be the first in their lives. That's movement number one. Don't forget that the culture around us is constantly influencing and pressuring and seducing us in very subtle ways to move in. But in the moving in of that voice, we are pushing out the voice of God. There can be no compromise in this. And so it calls us to deeply search our own hearts in order to determine where has the culture seeped in. Because it's at that point that we begin to have hope and possibility. Because when we don't, then I want you to know, sin never stays as a little seed planted in the corner of your heart that you hope nobody will find out about. Sin has one ability, one strong ability, and that's to grow. And in the growth of sin, we soon discover that we walk into movement number two. It's oppression. Those of you who perhaps have had to struggle with forms of addiction understand this. It's that coming to this point where you get so fed up with the way life is going that you're now left with not the joy of life, but you're left with the guilt, you're left with the shame, you're left with the sense of failures and the struggles because you know that cycle applies to you so well because you've walked in it. Now, I'm not sure, actually, after I say that, that we have to lay that on, the, on those who've had to struggle with certain visible addictions. I think that in all of us there's an addictive personality that wants to embrace, the, the temptation is to embrace sin, and in that sin, whether great or small, there's an oppressive nature that begins to take over your soul, and it's not fun. Movement number two, repentance. Repentance, repentance is an interesting word. Because I think so often when we get caught in the cycle, we come to this place of oppression, we begin to hate it, we begin to despise ourselves, we hate what's going on in our world, and all of that stuff. And so we, we, we confuse two words here. We confuse the word of repentance with the word forgiveness. 
it's not just saying, Jesus, I hate what's going on. Would you forgive me? God's waiting for something far greater than that from us. And here's our call this morning. He's waiting for us to look at what we're doing and hate it so badly that we want the other direction much more. It's called repentance. Repentance is a commitment to turn the direction of your life. Now, I'm sure we've all come to those points. We've made the attempt to try to make the 180-degree adjustment, but in it we found out that sometimes we don't make the 180-degree adjustment, we make it all the way around, and eventually we're back in the same spot again, and that becomes incredibly discouraging. So what do you do? Here's the good word. You repent again. It's in that process that our heart begins to turn. You know, most of us, I mean, we, we've heard the stories, haven't we, of, of somebody who perhaps was a, a severe alcoholic and they come to Jesus and in that night the taste of alcohol left him forever and he was completely free. And oh, how we long for that story for our own lives. But we discover that it usually doesn't work out that way. And so we find ourselves going back into the same struggle. But guess what? We're going to learn that there's a God who's with us in the struggle. He's not condemning us because of the struggle. He's walking us within it. He knows the power of sin. He knows the subtlety of the culture. He knows what things can pull us in, wrap us up, chew us up. He knows those things, and he deeply cares for the struggles that we're in. Whether it's small or whether it's big, it does not matter in the eyes of God. He's with us in the struggle so repentance may lead to repentance, may lead to repentance. Please, excuse me. Please don't ever get discouraged in the cycle. There is a faithful God walking with us. Here's the, here's, here's the, here's the, the fourth movement in all of this. There is a thing called deliverance. But deliverance isn't, isn't just um, sort of pumping myself up. Deliverance is saying, I can do this. The world wants to tell us we can do it at the same time that we're falling over our own or tripping over our own feet while we're trying to do it. God's deliverance is bigger than just the practices that we're struggling with. God's deliverance took place in a thing called the cross. And he went there, and in that cross, he brought us freedom and deliverance from sin in the ultimate picture. We're going to still try to work through the struggle. We're still going to work through it all. But I want you to know that if you have found Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's on your side, my friend. There is no turning back on that one. He cares. He wants you. He's working within you, and he's beside you all the way. So... The message titled today in the book was called A uh, Few Great Men, A Few Good Men and Women. I want to call this one Lessons for Now Living in the Promised Land. We've got there, the victory's been won. All right, so they got it. They have they, they defeated most of the bad guys. Now let's work with that one in a minute, too. So in the middle of this cycle, you read through the book of Judges, and then Israel sinned. I always want to put at the end of it, at least the second time around, again. I feel more comfortable with the again in it. Somehow identify with the again in it sometimes than just saying they've just sinned again. Oh, that's too bad. No. They're in the middle of the struggle constantly. This nation, now this is spread over 300 some odd years. Um, but they, they keep falling. They forget the story. They, 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 they don't understand where the initial deliverances were coming from. 
So we come to our first of the three judges. I've got to do this really, really quickly for us this morning. The first judge that came in was well, kind of a double fold. We, we, we think of Deborah. She was the prophetess in the land, and, and people kind of came to her, and, and, and she'd help them settle their issues and their complaints and their differences. And, but God had come to her, and she had to speak uh, or call on... Um, uh, where did it go? On Judges chapter 4, 4 to 9. She has this responsibility, Deborah, the prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, excuse me, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah. But in the middle of all of that, in verse 6, she sent for Barak. He, he's the big general. He's the guy in charge, kind of, of this area. And... and um, and the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. This is God now speaking through Deborah to Barak. The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabar. And I will lure Caesarea. He's the general on the bad side. The commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hand. God speaks to Barak through Deborah. I want you to do this. There's a battle that needs to be won. I need you to go for it. And he lays out the, a simple little plan. There's going to have to be more details added to it. But he gives him the plan. And he gives him this promise. I'm going to be with you in it. And Barak says, well, that, that's good. And then he looks at Deborah. And he said, okay, because Deborah's the one that's talking to him, right? I mean, the physical person that's talking to him. And he says, okay, uh, if you come with me, I'll do it. But if you don't come with me, I won't do it. When we enter the promised land... And we want to live successfully in that. We need to understand that it's God's voice that comes first, always. I wish we had more time to work on this one because I think this is huge. Because the temptation in our age of information and strategizing and goal setting and everything, we get the idea. We kind of know where God wants us to go. And then we forget to stop and listen to where it is he wants us to take us. And we start just doing our own strategy. We want to, we want to bring in our Deborahs. Okay, okay, if we can get this all figured out, then we'll get God in, or we'll get Deborah in here. And she'll kind of be with me. She'll be kind of my lucky rabbit's foot hanging from my belt or whatever. The simple truth in this story, shortened really fast, is that all God wanted from Barak was to go or to trust him to take him into this battle. He could bring Deborah along. He could bring anybody else he wanted along with it. The issue was first, do you trust me enough to carry you through into what I have called you to do? It's a huge issue. Do we trust him enough? I wonder how many times God nudges you, says this is something I'd like you to do. I'm just wondering whether you, you come along with me on this one or I'm asking you to come along with me on this one. And we go into our yes but... And um, I want you to know, God didn't need Barak. Things still worked out. I mean, he lost his honor. He gave that, God gave that battle to a woman. It wasn't Deborah. It was another lady by the name of Jael. But, oh, God wishes and longs for his people to hear what he has to say and say, I can go with you on that. And now, what do you want me to do? Trust first. All right. Let's go to our second story. It's the story of Gideon. comes out of Judges 6. And again, when we come to that chapter, we come across these verses, and 1 and 2, but it starts off, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again. 
There it is. An infamous statement. So we see this series of events then begin to unfold. The reason that, or what had happened, remember it's sin, oppression, repentance, and then deliverance, okay? Um, what, we, what we find out as a result of the Israelites doing evil in the eyes of the Lord is result number one. For seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Their oppressors had become so strong that they began to believe that the world was about their oppressors. And they ran and hid. They pulled back. All they could see was the possibility of those who were against them. And they began to decide within their own hearts they couldn't do it. Result number two. Devil always outdoes themselves. Midian so impoverished, in verse 6, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. It's too bad we have to wait to those points, isn't it? But at least it's a good starting point because it takes us from here to here. So let's, let, let's, let's not sit around and bemoan the fact that we lost a bunch of time because we, we went through our struggle. Just be grateful that you got to this point because it's in the calling out of God that we're going to begin to find out that the oppressor isn't as big as the oppressor wants us to think he is. The things that we're dealing with in our lives. Result number three. And God has a face-to-face chat with these Israelites. Verses 7 to 10. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's rehearsing sort of their history here again in front of them. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But, oh, tragic words, you've not listened to me. You've not listened to me. Um, I, I'm thinking we'd get in a big circle and hold hands on this one because I think we'd all be in agreement. It's those little steps in life that God says, I need you here. This is what I want you to do. These are in the big steps of life. God says, yeah, it's, it's pretty big, but here's what I want you to do. And he, and he lays out the plan. He does it. He does it beautifully. He'll show us if we allow him to do. The problem is simply found in these simple little words, but you would not listen to me. And we walk away. It's a tragic thing in life when we stop the voice of God in our own lives. He has so much he wants to help us with. But silence is a killer. Ever had a friend or a spouse or whatever, and the fight begins, struggle begins, some kind of argument begins. What's the worst, what's, what's the, the worst of that kind of argument? What is it? Silence. We now don't know what's going on. We just close up our mouths, waiting for the conflicts to leave, or waiting for the challenge to leave, or waiting for what we don't like to leave. We just go into silence, That's what God is saying. I've called you. I've done all of this for you. But you go silent on me. You will not listen to me. You back off. We don't have conversation anymore. And yet you still want so much from me. I mean, what is it that God is showing up in your life right now wanting to say? There's no exception in this room, friends. (laughs) 
there's not one person sitting here that the good and gracious God is not going, hey, hey, let's chat about this. Might be something we have to deal with in our own inner worlds. Maybe it's a challenge he wants us to do to help somebody else. I mean, the challenges are as varied as the people in this room, probably. But I'm just saying, what do we do with the tap on the shoulder? It's easy to sidestep, rationalize away what God is saying to ignore what he's calling us to do. But something always dies within us when our voice or our choices override God's directive. Something always dies within us. No exception. Result number four. Here's the good word now, all right? Now, this is going along pretty quickly. But result number four is God responds to their cries and he comes up with an action plan. And the plan begins with a guy by the name of Gideon. Now, there is so much to learn from this story, but I want to focus at least on the opening of this God-directed conversation with Gideon, all right? It starts in verse 12, I think we're still in Judges 6. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And then, Gideon says, verse 13, Pardon me, my Lord? <laughs> now, I, 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 don't, I don't know if... If it's because he, he, he's sort of sitting there self-absorbed and God come along, comes along and says something and he didn't hear it and he says, pardon me, what did you say? My suspicion isn't no, or my suspicion is that's not what it is. My suspicion is, are you crazy? Pardon me, my Lord? Uh, are you talking to the right guy here? Are, are we in this conversation together? Have you, have you kind of checked in, knocked on the wrong address? What's going, pardon me, my Lord? He says, but how can I save, oh no, first pardon me, Lord. He says, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of the Midianite. God has just said, I got something to say to you, mighty warrior. And he goes into this rant against God. I'm thinking one of two things is happening. It's either diversion. He doesn't want to hear what's going on here. So let's just kind of go back and blame God. It's a typical argument, right? The accusation comes against you. You don't listen to the accusation or the challenge or the call. You just throw back something else at somebody else. And he begins to rant against God. I'm, come on, you can't even do your own thing. Why, why, yeah, you were great back in the day, like the stories, make good Bible stories for the kids, but we're talking about now, God. Where's everything going on now? You've abandoned us. Or maybe it was a sense of entitlement. Maybe we get to a place where we get so comfortable with God that we can talk to him that way. And um, we look back and we see what the other generation got and we're not getting it. And we forget that that other generation gave their lives to get it. We just want it on the platter. Now, God loves to do that. We learned about that in another story. But when that, when that attitude comes from ourselves, we're missing the point. There is no sense of entitlement with God. God calls us first to give our attention to him. And then in the process, we begin to find out how God wants to bless us. The Lord turns to him. God, God simply ignores his whining. And the Lord turned to him and said, 
Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand, and am I not sending you? This meaning is also found in the name God gave Gideon when he called the mighty warrior. See, God has a very different view than ours. When God said, I want you to join me on this mighty warrior thing, what runs through Gideon's mind is another kind of reality. Because the reality for him is, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And you're calling me mighty warrior? I still think you got the wrong address. These things are not lining up in my head at all. But when we go back to that verse where God tells him to go in the strength you have, he's not saying go in your strength. He's going in the strength that you have been given because, because the, the definition of most mighty warrior and go in your strength is found at the end of the verse where he says, am I not sending you? The reason that you're going to go into the areas that I've called you to go is because we're walking along in this together. This isn't about you, me calling on you to kind of buck up and pull up your bootstraps and, and move into it. No, we're in this together if you'll come with me. That's the call. Go in the strength you have. You might be sitting there this morning knowing that God is asking you to do something and all you can say, but I'm the least in the family. It's interesting, though, that's usually where God knocks first. I don't know if you've noticed that. For example, when he comes to, to Moses in the burning bush and all of that, he should have gone to Aaron first. Because Aaron's the communicator. Aaron's kind of the leader. Moses gets it, but he doesn't. And God sticks with Moses. Let's him bring along Aaron after the fact, but he sticks with Moses. When, when God wants to finally raise up his own king because the king of the people's choice was an utter failure, that was Saul, their first king, but not God's choice. When he goes to it, he raps on the door of a family made up of strong, bravado men who are warriors. And he goes through the list of all those brothers, and he says, no, not you, not you, not you. And he comes to a little guy, young little boy, his name is David. That's the one I want. Oh, how we miss out on what God wants because we're excusing our limitations. We're putting our limitations in front of him and saying we can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. And then with Jesus, when he wants to start his ministry, he's going to change the world. He's going to transform the world. He takes, he's going to go to the cross. He's going to do all the things that we've celebrated already this morning. But who does he get? He doesn't get the movers and shakers, my friends. He does not. He goes to the simple people. He even picks some that are despised by others. The last ones that you would choose. If we can get that one into our heads, let me tell you this very, very quickly. It'll make you feel a whole lot comfortable, more comfortable with saying yes. Because you really are the one that God wants to choose. And he goes on. Well... You know the story. I hope, I hope you're reading through the, the, the book, the story, the Bible that was handed out. I hope you're reading through it. And I hope you read through the whole story here because there's so much in the book of Gideon. But we have to move on. My time is moving along. And um, I'm cognizant of that. Samson. You know, it's sad to be known for what one might have been. Samson had tremendous potential but Samson is the one example of how you don't want to live in the promised land. He's self-absorbed, so wrapped up in who he was, had tremendous potential. I mean, even when he started off, God said he's going to be the one who 
he will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. It was there. And born as a result of God's plan, he was going to do a great work for God. He was going to initiate the deliverance of Israel from the domination of the Philistines. And on top of all that, he was going to be given enormous physical strength. But Samson never really got it. He was just a whole bunch of could-haves. That's really what he was. He could have have strengthened the nation. He, He could have returned his people to the worship of God. He could have wiped out the Philistines. And sadly, it took his death to begin the serious destruction of those God had called him to remove from the nation. He had to die for the cause when he could have done so much before that and accomplished so much more. He so represents a picture of our present self-focused world. What's interesting, though, is that when he's spoken of in the New Testament, it's not his failures that are focused on. Instead, he's named in Hebrews 11.33. He's simply listed with others who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gaining what was promised, a home with a very gracious and merciful father. God called him in and places him in a later part of the story He calls him his own. Samson, in so many ways, is not the one to look up what we agree with. But if we can glean anything from this story, is that God is the God of second chances. It's never too late to start over again. However badly you have failed in the past, today is not too late to trust in an all-forgiving God. I could feel really comfortable making that my last statement, and maybe you're wishing I would. Really fast. Let me give you my conclusion, all right, because I think this just wraps us up fast. We'll do it. We've heard the stories, okay? And I hope you found some meaningful and personal applications. I hope somewhere there God tapped you on the shoulder and you got it. I got it. I can take that one home with me. There's my point of working. But how do we take and sum up a book like Judges? Well, it's actually not too hard because through the stories, or though the stories change, the people are different the story is one, and the people are different. The story is one repeatable saga, right? It goes like this. We sin because we don't keep God at the core of our lives. We are oppressed because our fellowship with God is broken and we fall prey to guilt, shame, fear, depression, loss of ultimate purpose. And, and you can add to your own to that list if it didn't fall in there. And then we repent. We come to that place, friends, where some of you might be sitting this morning where you're now just saying, enough is enough. Why do I drag the gods of my culture around with me? For one little moment, they might give me some pleasure, but the rest of the time I live with all the junk that, co- that accompanies those choices. And we come to that point, enough is enough, and we repent. It's not just, Jesus, forgive me. It's a concrete decision that I've had enough, because enough is enough, and I'm turning my back on this. And I'm going to trust that God is with me in the turning of my back. Because we're going to go into this battle together. It can only be accomplished with his help and your determination to do what at least you can do in all of your weaknesses. And we confess our sin. We name it. What is it? What's the thing in your heart right now? Don't don't go just to the big stuff. Go to the little stuff first. Because it's the little things that we ignore that grow inside of us and soon can take over and, and fill our lives with all kinds of things we don't want. 
So we confess our sins. And do you know why we take them and name that sins or those sins before God? Because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, how he wants to clean us up. And it's not just so that we can put on a smile for tomorrow. It's so that he can take us deeper into the promised land. So that he can give us a new kind of hope. That he, that, give us that confidence that we can walk with him in ways we never thought we could walk before. But he's there for us all the way. And then we experience deliverance. Oh, that deliverance looks so different. Everybody can put a new name to the, or a new experience to the word deliverance. All I can say to you is this right now. God is a deliverer. He's the deliverer. His word is true. That's his promise to us. He will deliver you. Don't look at the time. Don't look at how, I don't mean that time. I mean, don't look at the time it takes for that to come about. I just want you to stand on the confidence that you are walking with a God who so tremendously cares for you. I mean, cares for you enough Oh, and then we should have time to walk through the cross story, and then we get it, right? That's how much he cares, though. No, we experience deliverance, not self-determination, but God-empowered deliverance from what we could not or cannot free ourselves from. Let me give you, let me just jump ahead for, into somebody else's sermon here. I'm going to steal this one on them. Because here's, here's what he says. Here's our best line to, to, to say everything right now. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. They're talking about battles. For the battle is not yours, it is God's. The battle is not yours, it is God's. You take ownership of that battle, it's going to be one vicious cycle. And you're not going to come out winning. When you can learn to trust God so entirely with your life, don't be a barrack. You don't have to call Deborah in yet. Just call Jesus in first. Then find your Deborahs and your support groups and everything else that needs to go. But if you don't start with Jesus, you ain't starting. You just aren't. So, well, thank you for giving me two weeks in a row. This, this has been good. Um, and and, and, and it, it's time to go, and I understand that. But I just want to say to people here, because there's two kinds of sinners sitting in our group. Well, there's many kinds, but two general groups. There's the person who's walked in here and they've never understood that first encounter with God. They've never come to a place where they have asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins, to make that adjustment, to invite him into their life as their Lord and Savior. Boy, if, if that's you, then I'm saying just ask him to forgive you. Pray. pray. He, he, you don't need fancy words in this one. Just acknowledge where your heart is and ask him to come into your life in a new way. The other group of sinners is us more spiritual kind who are hiding stuff because we don't think this is a safe place to disclose our stuff. And so we just keep it hidden away, and it throws us into the cycle, and we come in here every morning, every Sunday, wishing the music would just take us to a new place, hoping there's a word from God here that'll take us to a new place, when what we need to do is just say enough is enough. Let's not worry about what people around us might think, how they're going to define you, that doesn't matter. I, I invite you to, to say your simple prayer to God. Say, enough's enough. I'm coming to you. And if it's helpful for any of you in one of those two camps to just join us here at the front for a time of prayer, then I invite you to do that. If that, that's helpful for you, then do it. It's taking your words and putting your feet together and making a declaration. It, it really kind of helps you with the 180-degree turn. So it's not just another secret little prayer in the pew. 
but it's a determination to say, enough is enough, and I'm going to join my family in on this one because I need you. All right? You're going to lead us in this final song, and um, I leave that with you. Blessings to you.